You're listening to the news on RTHK. The Chinese consulate in Nagasaki has confirmed that at least one sailor has died and nine others are still missing after a Hong Kong-registered cargo ship sank in rough seas between Japan and South Korea. The conditions of the other 12 sailors who were released have yet to be confirmed. The Japanese Coast Guard said it received a distress call from the vessel, the Jintian, on Tuesday night. Sean Kennedy has more details. Media quoted one person on the ship as saying it was listing and taking on water. Later reports said the 22 crew members, all Chinese or Myanmar nationals, had transferred to lifeboats. Three Coast Guard vessels, a helicopter and an aircraft were dispatched to search an area some 110 kilometres west of the Danjo Islands. There was no immediate word on what caused the vessel, which was carrying lumber, to capsize. And finally, a group representing the mask-making business in Hong Kong says government support will be needed if the industry is to survive when compulsory mask-wearing comes to an end. The Hong Kong Mask and PPE organisation said about 200 companies set up in the sector early in the pandemic, but that's dwindled to about a dozen now. With officials indicating that the mask mandate will soon end, that group's chairwoman, Dana Wu, says it's worth keeping the industry alive here. We understand the future and we understand our position, but the technology and experience we gained in these three years, we already reached the international highest level, highest quality. We hope that government can help us to supply, can continue our business, our industry in Hong Kong. And we are needed and we are variable to stay and survive in Hong Kong too. Because we don't know uh, how many diseases will come in the future. You've been listening to the news on RTHK. Well, hello and welcome to the world of work. I hope that you had a very good Chinese New Year as you hopped into the Year of the Rabbit. Just think, only two working days this week, so you're nearly at the weekend already. And we're here to help you spend your licey. Today is Thursday, 26th of January. I'm Richard Harris, and this is Money Talk. Not a lot happened over the holiday in the world of business and finance, but here are the latest headlines. Wall Street stock indices end only slightly down after having earlier fallen nearly 2% in intraday trading. As the earnings results season progresses, Microsoft and Boeing come in well below expectations, but Tesla beat both on the upside. And a short sell in Adani stocks wipes nearly 11 billion US dollars off the wealth of the group, the eponymous founder. John Kenneth Galbraith, the famous economist, said about his own kind that economists come in two types those who don't know, and those who don't know that they don't know. But to prove him wrong, we have a pair of economists in our Queensway studio as our guests this morning, in the form of our regular guests, the good doctor, Dr Enzio van Feil, a wealth investment strategist, and Louis Kois, who's chief Asia economist of S&P Global Ratings. And then our second segment is devoted to business intelligence, when we'll be joined by John Bruce, who's managing director of JB Advisory Services. And don't forget to download the great RTHK app, RTHK On The Go. It's free and you can pick up any time what Enzio, Louis and John have been saying this morning. Well, US stocks ended flat as investors await new economic data, 
with US GDP figures out tomorrow, which will shed further light on the health of the world's biggest economy. Analysts expect slightly lower growth of 2.6% in the three months to December, still nowhere near as a recession. Most stock markets have enjoyed the January effect with a comfortable bounce of 5 to 7%. Investors are looking at an easing of US inflation data, boosting hopes that the Federal Reserve would slow interest rate rises earlier than expected. China's reopening and a chance that Europe might avoid a deep recession have added to the seasonal rise in January share prices. But others point to a lackluster earnings season and see investors as being too optimistic, something we'll be taking up with our guests shortly. The European Central Bank is the most active G10 central bank this year in terms of rate rising. Wall Street shook off most of the losses, however, even though it was driven by a dire sales warning from Microsoft, with stock traders shifting their focus then to Tesla's earnings report later on. The S&P 500 almost raised a slide that approached 2% earlier in the session. On the markets, the S&P 500 was little changed at 4,007. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was little changed also at 33,743. And the heavy NASDAQ 100 index fell 0.2% to 11,313. UK market was down 0.2% to end to 7,745. The Eurostox index uh, bucked the trend. It rose a tenth yesterday to 4,148, while the Japanese Nikkei was up a third to 27,395. Asian markets, of course, were closed for the Lunar New Year holiday. Dollar slipped overnight as the Bloomberg dollar index fell 0.3%. Euro rose to 1.092. The British pound rose to 1.24, and that's making it uh, 9.71 Hong Kong dollars to the pound. Japanese yen rose to 129.4 per dollar, and the Chinese yuan is currently trading at 6.79 to the US dollar. Long-dated US government bond prices rose slightly as equities declined, Yield on benchmark treasuries is currently 3.45%. West Texas Intermediate Crude rose a bit to $80.56 a barrel, and gold futures are currently 1963 US dollars an ounce. The main news today, it's about the results season, closely watched by the markets as a guide to perhaps a slowdown in the global economy. Quarterly earnings on Wall Street have been relatively unremarkable which added to investor caution that the market had moved ahead of itself with the January rally. Microsoft was disappointing and so was aviation giant Boeing, but Tesla reporting just two hours ago showed flat revenues and earnings 5% higher than expected. Tesla's share price has halved in the last year. Adani shares took a 10.8 billion US dollar hit after activist share, uh, hedge fund Hindenburg said that it was a short seller of wide-ranging conglomerate. Short sellers looked to profit to the shares fall. Hindenburg issued a report targeting the company uh, run by billionaire business magnate Gautam Adani. Adani is a self-made tycoon who started as a commodity trader in the 1980s before moving into infrastructure, industry and fossil fuels. Hindenburg alleges that Adani's group key listed companies have 85% downside on a fundamental basis, owing to sky-high valuations after the company's share price had gained more than 3,300% in just three years. It's currently 10 past eight. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK. 
Well, we now have our economists uh, ready and waiting in the Queensway studio. That's uh, Enzio Van Fahl, a wealth investment strategist, and mm-hmm. Lou Case, chief Asia economist of S&P Global Ratings. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning, Richard. Morning, Richard. Good. Well, why don't we start? I mean, it's not really much news, actually, over the weekend and indeed uh, over the holiday. Let's uh, start with China because uh, Ch- people, a lot of people talk about China's rebound, especially in terms of revenge spending. I mean, Harry's got a joke about it in today's South China Morning Post. Um, what do you think of China's potential rebound post-COVID, NZO? Well, I think it's a little bit... People think it's it's like Lazarus in the Bible that China's just going to get up and and sprint away. I have my doubts about that because the um, you don't just take a three year death period and then click the on knob and all of a sudden things start moving ahead. Also, the people have become very income insecure, job insecure. Um, and I also doubt whether the the government's growth policy is going to kick in as quickly as the government hopes. I mean, how many roads and build bridges can you really build? It seems as if the 2.6 trillion U.S. dollars in savings that they've amassed, that's about 18 trillion renminbi, according to the calculations that I've come up with, they're only going to be sending about 1.5 trillion of that. That's about 3% of 2022's retail sales or 0.7% of 2022's nominal GDP. So the basic line is that they're restocking their savings, they're income insecure, so they're not going to go and spend, especially in a matriarchal society where the women run the, the spending, the purse, thank heavens. And I just don't think that Lazarus is going to be on a rebound. But I, I do think that, I mean, things are moving up in a bumpy fashion, but not, I think the markets, as you said before, are perhaps a bit ahead of themselves. Laurie, do you liken China with Lazarus? Or, or, or do you think it's, um, it's not going to move quite as fast as people are saying? I'm maybe a bit more optimistic than Enzio. Um, you know, I don't think that you can just switch on an economy uh, immediately. But uh, look, we've had mobility being restricted very, very heavily by government restrictions. And people are now, of course, initially they were, when things opened up, reluctant to go out. And But we see that mobility has been picking up remarkably fast. I think that, um, yes... There will be some lingering doubts economy-wide in terms of, you know, job security. There will be some lingering health uh, considerations why people may not go out immediately. But I, I think consumption is going to lead China's recovery this year. Yes, if you look at the the figures of other countries, we did see uh, maybe a more modest increase in, say, the first quarter after the lockdowns, but then this substantial increase on the the second quarter. Do you think it might just be delayed, Enzio? In China, yes. I mean, I'm still going for a 5% GDP for this year, so don't get me wrongly based on electricity consumption of up by 10%. But... Um, I just, again, I'll just re- reiterate my point. I just think that you're working off a low base from last year. And so the numbers, of course, are going to look a little bit rosier. And I agree with Lewis here that the mobility certainly will be picking up. But again, if the U.S. does indeed slow down, if Europe remains, in my mind, at least a bit in the doldrums, um, if Japan remains in the doldrums, I don't think that China can be a one-man show that saves the world economy. What do you think, Louis, in terms of that? You know, I I don't think that 
if you ask Chinese leaders, you know, what's your what's your biggest uh, target or objective for this year? I'm not sure that they'll say we want to save the global economy. I think they want to see solid growth in China. You know, the, the growth reaching a five, maybe five and a half, maybe even six percent or so um, in a climate where exports are going to be weak, where several of the investment components are going to be weak. Manufacturing investment is under pressure. Infrastructure investment is not going to grow as fast as it did last year. Real estate investment still needs to pick up because the housing market is still extremely weak. So if they can pull that off, basically driven by consumption, with consumption the fastest component of, of, of all of these, then that, that, that looks like a pretty decent picture. And indeed, that kind of growth in China is not great for the global economy because the kind of growth in China that is good for the global economy is um, real estate and infrastructure heavy that sucks in lots of imports. So this is not, you know, necessarily a, a panacea for the global economy, but it should be okay for China. Well, the other thing, of course, with Chinese growth that we've seen time and time again is overheating. So it's gone past that middle point and the pendulum swung the other way and the government's had to worry about what do we do about the property market bubbles, what do we do about uh, bubbles in the stock market, that sort of thing. Are we like to see any of that? You know, people are already... People are often worrying about so many things at the same time. People are already worried again about the inflationary in, uh, impact of the expected recovery, both domestically, but also what's going to what's it going to do to uh, to global inflation. I think these worry, worries are legitimate, but I wouldn't worry, you know, greatly about that. It's going to take quite some time of good growth in China to see all the slack being absorbed in the economy. Yeah, so I sensible. think, yeah, as mm. Yeah, I, I think Lewis is very commonsensical there. Again, I, I just all that I'm pointing out is that the markets may have got a little bit ahead of themselves in terms of the ebullience, and I'm just saying Lazarus may not rebound as quickly as as one wishes because again, this this the the scarring of the last three years on people's psychology, kind of the 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 last three years scarring is really kind of the COVID psychologically of China. I think that's right. Uh, it's going to, that's going to take time. We, we've seen uh, China almost uh, work on a different cycle, partly because yes. we've got this, um, uh, the different COVID lockdowns we're working on a different cycle. Do you think we're likely to see those cycles link in more closely to what the global economy is doing? Um, if, I, if I can start. And, I, yeah, I don't think up. so. I think that the economic clock in China is going to move very clearly into an excess demand for goods and excess supply of money. Because what does the, that mean? That means that's good for the stock market because you've got goods demand rising slowly, bumpily in my mind, excess supply of money. I think they're going to have to do some form of monetary easing if they want to get this growth engine kicked in. Um, whilst in the US, of course, you have the excess supply of goods looming, albeit maybe less strongly than I'd thought originally, and an excess demand for money. Obviously, the Fed has been raising the rates. So I don't see those cycles as suddenly sort of meshing um, because they're, they're quite at opposite ends of the clock. I, I think, you know, um, with these countries coming out of COVID at a different time and in a different way, 2023, it's going to be highly asynchronous. Um, if, you, if you think, you know, what is, are we 
moved have we moved to a new type of world where we will continue to see asynchronous growth where different countries are either booming or slowing down i'm not 100 certain we've been surprised how an economy like india which we always said had its own domestic cycle is now also quite uh, and 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 my colleagues who have looked at this empirically they they were a bit surprised as well how much the indian cycle as well is becoming you know aligned with the global one so i i, I would be cautious on that uh, and yet that's often quite good for investors if you have asynchronous cycles you also have asynchronous <laughs> stock markets which uh, you know over many years have, have gone in line and the the best way for an active manager to make money is to invest somewhere where it's doing well uh, and avoid somewhere where it's not doing very well yeah so so you know so so those of us like me who 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 think that at the end of the day the world will remain quite aligned that uh, that that may not be such a great picture then because as i said my colleagues have noticed how india has moved from being uh you know a kind of a nice hedge to uh, moving increasingly in line with the global cycle there's just one f slight find the ointment but not to be negated but not to negate louis which is that of course the we all know that the structure of the, of the chinese political sort of system is, is very different to, to India's and into the West. We all know that. So uh, command economy might still be a little bit different, but okay. And I, the other point that I would make is if you do have the asynchronous cycles, as Louis points out, then of course it's much easier to diversify. If, you, if, there are, if, if everybody's going in the same direction, well then you, it's kind of yes or no, whilst if it's asynchronous, then you can sue, well maybe we could then put a little bit less in the US born China. Uh, let's look at the U.S. in a minute, because I think one of the stories that's going to start bubbling over in the next couple of weeks is the U.S. debt ceiling. Uh, what's your, what are your thoughts and, and what are your team's thoughts on that, Louis? Well, you know, it's, uh, we've been here before, unfortunately. Uh, it's a pretty ugly picture. And, you know, people have been asking, you know, is, can, they, is, can the U.S. political system really not come up with arrangements to avoid this apparently not that's the answer of the experts um so it's it's another cycle i mean everybody's guess is, is that at the end of the day something will be worked out at the very last minute but it's a it's a painful you know unnecessary uh, process well it's a bit of active horse trading i think having done a little bit of work on the hill it, it just seems mccarthy said that part of the condition would be that he would go hell for leather on the budget cuts. And I think that's what the Republicans want to push through on this. Um, just a little bit of a date here for our listeners that the real problem is supposed to arise, according to Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, July, August of this year. Um, and that's when the, by that time, they will have run out of extraordinary measures, kind of band-aids with which to tide over some of that debt problem, like suspending new investments, like not paying the poor veterans, but instead prioritizing the payments of principal and interest on, on other expenditures. So I think that you're going to find July, August is something that our investors might want to keep an eye, might, might want to keep an eye on. But again, I agree with Louis that we've been here before. It'll just boil down to a, a few last minute all night sessions, eyeball to eyeball, a budget cut, and then the thing is band-aided over. But again, it's, it's a pretty sad sign. Is that the best they can do? But it's a lot of game playing, isn't it? I mean, of course. Is, is, it, is it really worth a, a hell of beans uh, in terms of what's likely to be happening with the global economy? 
I don't think so, again, because if Louis and I are correct, then I, I just think that the that the ultimate result will be that you will find some scare factors rising treasury yields in the meantime because people get a little bit scared but nothing sort of precipitous over that 3.45 on the 10-year that you were mentioning before give me four percent we're, we're talking um so i think that um but it, it will just it will make people nervous and if we do have a u.s slowdown or people again market disappointment that will then say well you see i told you they can't even sort their debt out so maybe it's time to get rid of the u.s again that's why i've got an overweight on china uh, any thoughts louis hmm? no i i agree with ngo it's uh it you know the the most likely scenario is that at the, at the end of the day something will will uh, something will be patched together but investors don't like uncertainty and so there will, there, there will be volatility in the meantime and yeah it's unfortunate uh, well just before we go the um, the big question of of course uh, most investors are rubbing their heads over is the markets had actually quite a decent bounce in january you know we we really have had the seasonal January effect come through uh, almost against the run of play uh, when people were thinking, well, there's recession maybe around the corner and um, things aren't looking quite so bad. Uh, Louis, you first. What's your view ahead of um, uh, of what the markets have been doing and what they like to be doing, say, over the next few months? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, I don't want to claim to be uh, too much of a market expert, but I look at the economy, right? And so if you look at what has happened in the economy, it's remarkable. We have so far not really seen unemployment go up. Uh, the, the, the growth numbers continue to be decent. The Fed is getting nervous about this because they want to see, to be honest, unemployment go up. They need to see a bit of pain in the labor market in order to make sure that core inflation pressures, that these labor cost increases are coming down. Um, I think markets are have been uh, going a little bit uh, ahead of themselves in expecting that we can avoid any uh, major slow down in the economy and still see inflation go back to the 2%. So I think we're going to get some uh, some surprises this year with uh, nasty inflation numbers. Uh, Enzo, a quick summing up from you, positive or Economic not so positive? clock, excess supply of goods, excess demand for money. I think the markets are still worried about growth because they've got an inverted yield curve that remains persistent, a negative Fed funds rate. And again, I would just repeat, this time is not different. That was my message last last time, last year, Chinese style, um, that whenever you've had this very high the strong rise in Fed funds rate, there has been a recession, or let's call it a slowdown, and market slowdown has followed, and I think that's going to be evident in the earnings that we see going forward. Well, the next maybe six. it's time for, for one of those. Well, Enzia von Fahl from uh, Wealth Investment Strategist, and Louis Coase, S&P Global Ratings, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciate your wisdom, and we look forward to seeing you again. Well, I'm now going to introduce uh, John Bruce, who's Managing Director of JB Advisory Services Limited. Uh, good morning, Brucey. Uh, good morning, Richard. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well, thanks. Slightly recovering from my cold, which was following on from the last cold. Um, anyway, let's get down to business intelligence, which is your speciality. Now, there's always a joke about military intelligence being a contradiction in terms. What's business intelligence? <laughs> An extension of military intelligence. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think rather than what is it, it would be better to ask what purpose does it serve? I mean, it's, it's fundamental to confidence in the entrepreneurial and transactional world. Who are you employing? A well-known and very successful figure in the risk business, Steve Vickers, recently highlighted the risk posed in the current economic resurgence from disloyal employees who may say the disruption of normal business, working from home, etc., as an opportunity to profit from their employer's intellectual property. That's the very basics. That's actually, honestly, like employee screening. But who are you transacting with? Who are you thinking of cooperating with? It's so ba- about- basically what you're trying to do is... is- investigate what the moods, what the changes, uh, some of the things in advance that um, uh, businesses ought to be looking for that um, they're not really spotting at the moment. Absolutely. That that, that would be in a sort of bigger, um, actually, um, strategic paper. But a lot of the time, clients will come to you and say, you know, we have this potential investment. And I think just to to highlight um, the problems, I mean, we've all seen what happened with FTX. And yet um, a sovereign wealth fund f- found them perfectly okay to put 300 million US dollars into them. FTX was this recently gone bankrupt uh, crypto firm. Exactly. I mean, and I, th- I think, we're, I think what the understanding that we have here, now, whether you're selling widgets, beer cans or non-fungible tokens, let's be honest, I have no idea what a non-fungible token is. You still have to have a company that has the fundamentals. Now, if you bear with me, I'm just going to quote slightly from the congressional hearing with the new CEO of uh, FTX. Uh, Nearly all of these situations share common characteristics, ranging from gross mismanagement, excessive leverage, failures of internal controls, failures of external checks as a result of audit firm failures or insufficient board governance. But never in my career have I seen such an utter failure of corporate controls at every level. Now, it goes on and on like that. Absolutely chaos. And yet... Um, this sovereign wealth fund, which made a statement along the, for a 1 to 1.5% stake such as ours, it is neither feasible nor the market norm to conduct due diligence equivalent to an investment. So, but, so Bru- uh, John, yeah. just in terms of yes. uh, 15 seconds on, what should people be doing about their business? Uh, first, first of all, at the very beginning, conduct basic due diligence. I've got one more prime example. A bank lost seven figures by investing in a major investment in Hainan, where the guy told him he was working in the entertainment industry. Um, it's a case that I did many years ago. Nobody mentioned it. turned out the guy had been in jail for 10 years for rape. Um, the guy in the bank panicked and came back to me and said, how serious a rape was it? Um, yeah, we need to understand the basic understanding. It's, it's all so about it's basically a fool, a fool and his money is soon parted. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a fool and his money is soon parted. As ever, Richard, we're, 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 rushing, we're rushing along here, and I realise that um, the news is coming up. But let's be honest. It was Burns Day yesterday. The honest man, though we are so poor, is king of men for all that. There's lots of honest men out there, but we have to be ready to find the ones that aren't honest if we're going to be investing our and other people's money in it. Very well said, John. Thank you very much. That's uh, John Bruce, Managing Director, JB Advisory Services Limited. Uh, Markets are pretty sluggish today, looking at the rest of the market, so uh, I don't think we need to say too much more about that. That's it for today. I'll see you first thing tomorrow. I'm Richard Harris, and this has been Money Talk. 5, 6, 7 a.m. Radio 3. And now the weather, currently uh, mainly cloudy and it's cold. Bright periods during the day. Maximum temperature 16 degrees, currently 14 degrees and 66% uh, relative humidity. And now we're going to join Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news.
President Biden has announced that the United States will send 31 tanks to Ukraine in a significant policy reversal. They're among the most capable in the world, but their arrival in Ukraine will take several months. The U.S. National Security Advisor John Kirby says they are to help protect Ukrainian land. These tanks are meant to help Ukraine fight effectively uh, on open terrain to defend their sovereignty and their territory and to win back territory that the Russians have taken from them. They don't represent an offensive threat to Russia. Do they represent a threat to Russian soldiers? You bet they do, but not to Russian soldiers that are in Ukraine, not, not, to, uh, not to Russia proper. Hours earlier, Germany confirmed it would supply 14 Leopard tanks. They can also be exported by other countries, including Poland and Finland. Moscow has reacted angrily to the news, describing it as extremely dangerous. But the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said foreign tanks would burn like any other on the battlefield. The police have defended the officer who shot a man on the island of Pengchao on Tuesday night, saying he felt his life was under threat. Officers say two policemen were responding to a noise complaint on Wing On Street. They allege that the man, who appeared to be drunk, grabbed the officer's neck and pushed him down the stairs. The officer warned him and then fired three shots, two of which hit the man in the stomach and arm. Danny Lee is a detective inspector in the Marine Regional Crime Unit. The police force has a guideline to govern whether a police officer should discharge his firearm. And one of the factors is that uh, the perceptions of the police officer, whether he will be uh, suffer from death or seriously bodily injury. And at that moment, I'm uh, sure that my officer has a perception that he may suffer from death or seriously bodily injuries, and so he's discharged his firearm. And this reason is justified. The 43-year-old man who was shot was taken to Eastern Hospital by helicopter and is said to be out of danger after undergoing surgery. A 33-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of obstructing and assaulting police. The Chinese consulate in Nagasaki has confirmed that at least one sailor has died and nine others are still missing after a Hong Kong-registered cargo ship sank in rough seas between Japan and South Korea. The conditions of the other 12 sailors who were rescued have yet to be confirmed. The Japanese Coast Guard said it received a distress call from the vessel, the Jintian, on Tuesday night. Sean Kennedy has more details. Media quoted one person on the ship as saying it was listing and taking on water. Later reports said the 22 crew members, all Chinese or Myanmar nationals, had transferred to lifeboats. Three Coast Guard vessels, a helicopter and an aircraft were dispatched to search an area some 110 kilometres west of the Danzhou Islands. There was no immediate word on what caused the vessel, which was carrying lumber, to capsize. A group representing the mask-making business in Hong Kong says government support will be needed if the industry is to survive when compulsory mask wearing comes to an end. The Hong Kong Mask and PPE organization said about 200 companies set up in the sector early in the pandemic, but that's dwindled to about a dozen now. With officials indicating that the mask mandate will soon end, that group's chairwoman, Dana Wu, says it's worth keeping the industry alive here. We understand the future and we understand our position. But the technology and the experience we gained in these three years, we already reached the international highest level, highest quality. We hope that government can help us to supply, can continue our business, our industry in Hong Kong. And we are needed and we are variable to stay and survive in Hong Kong too. Because we don't know uh, how many... Diseases will come in the future. 
And finally, the European Court of Human Rights has confirmed it will hear a Dutch case against Russia over the downing of a Malaysian Airlines plane by Ukrainian separatists in 2014. Almost 300 people on flight MH17 were killed. The BBC's Anna Holligan has this report. This decision means Russia can be investigated for its alleged role. The Dutch government has accused the Kremlin of playing an integral part in the downing of the passenger jets, of failing to investigate the disaster and of orchestrating disinformation campaigns that made it harder to find the truth and intensified the relative suffering. Judges at the European Court of Human Rights found